Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, my friend, we're back in the saddle. Hey, Scott. Is it? Yeah, oh, my it's God. Good to see you. It's late October. Oh, my it's late October. Goodness. We are. It's been a while. I know. So for people that were missing the Atlas Project, we're back in the saddle. And we're going to talk a little bit about, is there a new normal? Well, what's no, what was normal? We were going and then we weren't. So now we're the new normal. We're back. I mean, the new, yeah. In, in fairness, the thing that was abnormal for me is I went back to Canada for a couple of months, nine weeks. And, um. Uh, the family stuff and you had and, to get a visa right and i had to get a visa and everything took longer of course because of the year that we were in and you know when i was leaving i was reflecting it was probably the longest i've been back um you know in the city of my birth since like in in 25 30 years so it's quite you know it was it was it was good and i feel like it was important to you know when you go back to a place you know where I have all my family is there it is really important to leave some stuff behind, not bring it all back with you, um, just to kind of create space for the stuff that you can only do um, when uh, when you're physically together with with, with family. So I, I really appreciate that you gave me the space to, you know, step away from the Atlas Project for a while and and oh, of course. Uh, it's and, always and invest that time in some pretty selfishly private conversations. <laughs> I didn't record them; uh, no, they were no. good. <laughs> I mean, the the personal is the political and vice versa, right? Um, and I think that's just definitely the case. Um, it was so, also, it was yeah. also, by the way, great being back in North America to, you know, enjoy CNN and Fox News and, you know, watch, uh, you know, watch <laughs> late masochist. night television, like in real time, as opposed to catching the catching the, the best bits on uh, on rerun in the morning when I woke up here in London. So. It's a good year. So you're like time to, you're a masochist. The thing is, what you're saying, and I, I know you can't fully appreciate this, but because because I'm not um, I'm not one of your people, you can kind of you know you you can watch a lot of the chaos, and and you're just a bit you're. If I were American, I'm certain that I would be I would be there. Um engage somehow in trying to help make sense of it all. Um, but I feel like there is just so much energy in, in that conversation that um, it, it's nice to be able to be one step removed from it and, and watch, even though I know that it has, you know, profound consequences for, for me, my family, my country. I mean, no one in the world is disconnected from this. But it's nice, nonetheless, to feel one step removed, so you don't have to live in the midst of it. I don't know what it's like to to be in it, and you don't have the choice to step away from it. Well, you know, I've found that it's funny. A lot, and a lot of these friends have become relatively new friends through Basecamp. But I've been talking and dialoguing a lot with Canadian friends around our political situation, the COVID situation, just like life because. Canadians are really astute observers of the United States because 
you, you have access to our news and yet you're you're close enough to understand and different enough to be culturally distant to get an, a different take. Hmm. And so I just find I learn a lot about American political and cultural life talking with Canadians because hmm. they cuz you guys I mean Canadians have a vested interest in it cuz we're neighbors um and and pretty interdependent on each other in many ways. And so yeah, it's been really interesting. So so it's uh so we're going to talk a little about the new normal and it's an interesting question because what is normal, right? Like, like what is, you know, I think, I think because we're on the, we're in a sort of, uh, right now in the United States, at least, and, and you guys are in the UK too, right? There's a COVID spike, which is pretty significant. And, and, and they're on continental Europe too, like in France and Germany and stuff. And then in the United States, of course, this is, this, uh, election, which everybody thinks is going to be apocalyptic. I mean, <laughs> like somehow everybody thinks everything is going to be so different Wednesday. Mm. Of- the normal the normal has been under threat all year, it seems, to the point where it, it starts to feel absurd to, you know, talk about going back to it. And, and that, that's why I agreed, like we, we should we should take a moment and and reflect on this word that that seems so necessary in in so many conversations but but isn't just we're just not giving it the thought that it deserves i was just on a yeah and so we have to understand like what what are we saying to ourselves you know when we think well you know when things go back to normal or and and i had a conversation just just before jumped on this call and we were kind of talking about the imagery of it's like we've kind of been thrown into the water and, you know, back in February and March, I think that, you know, it's like we were holding on to some rope to pull us back into shore. And and everything was on pause until we got back to shore. And then at some point we realized that we're not getting back <laughs> to shore. Yeah. And and at that point, kind of make a, I don't know, if maybe some people have consciously made the choice. Maybe many of us have not. But to kind of let the rope go and you know, turn around and start swimming for the other shore, um, not quite knowing how far away it is. But it's kind of like we've been outside of normal for so long that, you know, new habits, new ways of thinking have taken hold. And 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 the normal is now um, a land we can never go back to because we've changed. And isn't that always, I mean, so in some level, that's always the case in world history, right? Like, I mean, the past is always elusive when we're recalling it or whatever. But I mean, I I do think that there is a difference in late modernity, right? And this is, I mean, any historian specialist that are listening will probably going to say this sounds like an absurd statement, but, but I think in, in, most of your statements lot, are absurd. So that's, absurd, right? So that's it's, it's part of the course, right? Yeah, that's it's part right. of the course. It's part but of the value you, like, you bring. <laughs> exactly. But don't you think for most, for for massive chunks of pre-modern, the pre-modern world, a lot of people are living and dying largely in the world that their grandparents are living and dying in, unless there's a geopolitical like like you know disruption, an army comes in, disrupts everything. You know, technological changes don't happen very rapidly, right? Cult, like cultural changes don't happen very rapidly unless you're in a, you're in a particularly mobile kind of um, fluid culture, like the Roman Empire, 
where where there's just a lot of there's an intricate infrastructure or certain parts of golden ages of China where you know, there's a lot of infrastructure and there's a lot of movement. But but by and large, a lot of people don't live in er- in eras of normative kind of constant change. Whereas it, you know you think about like the twentieth, you just think about World War One. You're beginning this war with you know guys on horseback with bright uniforms, dun dun dun, and you're ending the war in modern camouflage uniforms with with machine guns and mustard gas in one war, like in one war, like it just, you know, in, in over a couple years, stuff radically changes. And I, I don't know that like, it, it's interesting. This is why I feel like you go to the Apple store and you, you, you get your iPhone and you have buyer's remorse once you get it, because it's like, well, and you know, hmm. in a year, I'm, I'm going to have some new thing that it's going to make everything seem like this is passe. So, yeah. So there's already like, there's like three giant, giant themes that you've just hit on and I, maybe we can pick up a couple of them like but like one is you know you talk about sort of you know historical nostalgia and the, so so one of the big threads I'll, I'll just identify a couple of doorways you pick where you want to go one of the big doorways is there is something violent in the idea of normal in the sense that, like, what do we mean when we say going back to normal? Are, like, are we talking about going back to, like, restaurants and concerts or traveling? Or are we talking about, you know, all the less visible but equally important issues of inequality, stress, you know, money-dominating politics? Like, a lot of what is normal, if we're normalizing it, is a terrible violence. <laughs> so that's that's a big doorway. The other big doorway, talk about technology, I mean... In, in the conversations I have and, you know, on kind of the speaking circuit and with business leaders and, you know, thought people or whoever they are. But one of the tropes, one of the oft repeated tropes this year has been how, you know, all the trends have been accelerated by this. Right. So people were getting into, you know, home delivery and now it's moved ahead so much faster than we expected. You know, people were going mobile and now, you know, the idea of, you know, tiny example somebody was talking about yesterday on a stage, on a virtual stage was, you know, now like buying cosmetics. So you're not going to go in and try a tester in store. Instead, you download the app, take a photo of yourself and you, you touch up the photo, but with like real life cosmetics, you can buy and decide, oh, that's what I want to wear. So like, we thought like that's going to come in a few years time. And then suddenly it had to come this year because that was the only way to test and try before you buy. And so it's, I think it's become maybe the most common and it's insightful, but also overused idea that that's what's happened to normal is the stuff that was changing it is now changing faster. Yeah. I, so I really like the two things, a couple of things that you said there. I like them all. But the one thing that jumps out at me is, you know, Donald Trump's campaign slogan theme for both cycles has been make America great again. Although they flirted with make America great again, again, like, but, but that, that tends to sort of you know, hit at what you're getting at. At what point was America great? Like, because we've got a host of imperialistic sins. We've got a history of a, a genocide. You've been um, talking to Canadians again. <laughs> it's slave free. I mean, sl- I mean, you think about like really. I mean, you know, you know, we, up until fifty years ago, you know, like really, African Americans aren't really free. I mean, like, I mean, this is what the whole civil rights movement's about. I mean, we yeah, we ended slavery, but there was this century there where there's still not real freedom or class, and even now there's still systemic 
I mean, Philadelphia is 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 literally on fire right now because of another really avoidable police shooting. Um, so like, so what's the normal? Is the normalcy like normal for me, or or, or something that's anxiety reducing, a memory or a nostalgia that's anxiety reducing for me personally? So there's something there about, you know, if we go back to the violence of the normal, and there's also a kind of you know a violence uh, in the in the prevailing myth. Right. So, you know, as, so, you know, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but for all the non-Americans in the world, whenever we hear an American say like only in this country is a story <laughs> like mine possible, we all look at one another and we laugh <laughs> just, just so you know. Um, but, you know, but, but there is this, um, I think it is part of now I'm, you know, speaking, it's not my place to say, but I think there is a, an important part of the American identity is this, belief in the kind of um you know upward economic mobility yeah yeah if you if you look at the statistics and, and so the last time i heard it i forget who it was it must have been somebody on the campaign trail you know i turned to my partner looking at the statistics and you know the latest report on sort of economic mobility you know the united states is 27th or something you know, behind sort of basically all the western european countries and then there's canada new zealand australia and, and then you get into into the mixed, into the mixed cases. So again, it's this. But, but don't you think we're, we're, we're very much all or, a, 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 we're, we're all no or progress unless we can challenge the normal, right? So that's interesting that there's such a, an, an intuitive desire to reclaim the normal when in fact, you know, kind of one of the fundamental myths of the American dream, if we're sort of still on that topic is progress, which is a consistent, challenge to the normal it's 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 a myth that says that the normal is not nearly good enough right we are imperfect and we're we're imperfect people on this journey towards perfection but we're never going to get there and so we're always going to be in theory improving upon it but we kind of take away our habits and suddenly we desperately want want them back or we used to i mean so this is the other thing i think about about normal is you know i think we have to recognize that our habits, habits change and they don't spring back. Our habits have changed. Um, I was talking to an economist and, you know, economists have a fancy term um, called hysteresis and basically refers to how, like if there's an economic depression and, you know, a lot of businesses go bankrupt, those businesses just don't automatically reappear when, uh, when times are good again. So, you know, so this up and down, there is a real kind of permanent consequence. Um, the stuff that's lost just doesn't return. And and I think, you know, in hindsight, we're going to see from this time, this period of time, a sort of human hysteresis. Right? Our habits have changed. And, and, and even when it becomes possible to reclaim them, we, we might not. Um, I'm not actively dating at the moment, but I imagine for, for, you know, if you're in your twenties, if you're going to university now and you're getting into relationships with people, the, the whole way of getting into relationship with someone has been remade by the pandemic. And if that's the kind of first relationship you got into, that may always be how you get into relationships, you know, much more time, much, much more time having a conversation with someone before you even meet them, you know, let alone have some kind of physical intimacy with them. 
Well, and this is the interesting thing too. I think before the pandemic, people would say, well, online relationships aren't real relationships. But I think we've experienced now, like just through Basecamp, like I've we met people through the couple of virtual base camps we've done who've become close friends. And, you know, there's a church in Phoenix that I've done some stuff with and I've done some like, you know, talks and things for them. And I've developed relationships with people I've never met in person, but there is deeply, you know, they're real and they're in the, and they're real connections. And I, you know, you and I, like we've met in person one time in our lives that's and true. you're one of the people <laughs> one time right we've met one time and yet like in person and yet we've spent hours and hours in, in conversation you're one of my favorite conversation partners and I, I i don't think there's anything so i mean i think there's just kind of in the kind of technophobe sort of or culture reactionary kind of thing it's like well these aren't real relationships well i mean of course they're different but who's to say what's real and i and i've talked to some mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. Um, actually, some incredibly brilliant people who have been guests on the podcast who are in their, my guess is like 50s, and and two of them said the same thing to me. They both said, and they don't know each other, they both said the exact same thing. We're both reconciled, they both each said they're reconciled to the fact that they may never go to a restaurant again. And I thought, wow, wow. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> and, 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 wow. That, Right. And they both live, I mean, they both do, I think, live, they live in different states, but they both live in the Northeast. But I thought, wow, I mean, that's remarkable that they're both thinking the same thing. Hmm. And, and, and that, so what you're talking about, the hysteresis, like things like restaurants, I mean, this is not, I mean, this is going to really change things for, hmm. for lots of economic models. Yeah. Lots some of, of the stuff models. we've lost, we're just not going to pick it up again because maybe we were, we were doing it and it wasn't to, uh, it wasn't a strong, compelling driver. It was just kind of the done thing. And once that is broken, that then to recover it requires a real, a real desire. And I think there are a lot of activities for which that desire doesn't uh, doesn't exist. And you're right; I see it everywhere. So uh, friends in the in the uh, you know the kind of big music festival business, and you know the prevailing wisdom there is that there were a lot of marginal festivals that are just never going to come back and the good ones will. And so it's kind of like a culling of the dead wood sort of thing. Mm-hmm. that's happening briefly. I should give a shameless plug for the next virtual base camp, which is going to be November the 7th. Um, it's a free global gathering place for us to have impactful conversations with improbable people and I really think that, you know, to your point, like we, we have to seize the moment to to create some of these new habits, which are really healthy for us, you know, around expanding the expanding the diversity and just the breadth of people that we can really connect with. While we're still in this moment where we're all kind of connected by the same event um, if we don't come out of this moment having taken advantage of that, I think we've really missed um, just something of profound importance for the rest of our lives. I think there's really going to be a, a kind of a, a slice of the world that has that comes out of this um, sort of in relationship poverty and and a slice of the world that comes out of this in relationship abundance. And, you know, Basecamp as this free space where we try to enable anyone and everyone 
to achieve that abundance. Uh, I, I really feel like it's the most important thing that we're doing right now. So anyway, November 7th, journey to basecamp.com. There's still spots available. Sorry, shameless plug done. Back no, I, I, I want to <laughs> echo the shameless plug because I'll be there. And I, I had an experience the other day. This is kind of a, a, a roundabout way to say something about Basecamp. I participated in a COVID-19 um, vaccine trial that was going on here. Um, oh, yeah. I yeah, feel we'll that's something on, on that. Yeah, I feel that's something on Facebook. And they called me a couple weeks later, like, are you still interested? Sure. I go and I never felt so to such togetherness. Like these volunteer, the, the people that were conducting the trial, the, the medical professionals, the social workers, the, the technicians, they were so encouraging and grateful to me that I'd volunteer. Like, cause you know, you don't really, I mean, they give you 50 bucks for your time or something, but you're there for like four hours. And, you know, I, I learned a lot about the vaccine process, like their work. I mean, I, I was grateful to them and we had this great, and then, I, it was a gorgeous day, and I walked to this place called Rittenhouse Square, um, and just sat and uh, ordered like a little, you know, appetizer, and sat there watching everybody in the city of Philadelphia with masks on, and and really like this resoluteness. And I, I told some people we're all sitting outside, and they've got the tables distanced, but I got in a conversation with a few people. And, we were talking about one guy was buying a, his first house in the city. He's been here for a decade and finally buying a home. And I told them about the vaccine trial and they were so encouraging. Like, yeah, this is amazing that you're doing this. And I had this sense of solidarity that day. Like that, mm. oh my gosh, me, even if the federal government government is kind of abandoning us right now, or is, is, is seems inept that we're this sense in the city. We're making it through this together, right? Like we're, we're, we're together in this. And I feel mm. the same way at base camp. Like it's this interesting group of global thinkers, artists, activists, entrepreneurs, creatives. But there's this sense of weird solidarity. That it, it's it's hard to put your finger on the pulse. It's a lot about seeking questions more than answers and doing it t- together. And you, you come away like in, in a time of incredible isolation. For me, Basecamp has been a, a, a node, a, a hub of solidarity. Like we're hey we're here's a community we're journeying together, um, and it just makes the world a lot less of a lonely place, and it and it makes it um a little less scary in the sense of you got a bunch of people that are that are you know trying to summit the existential intellectual kind of mountain with you, and it's great to not feel alone in that. It's uh, it'll be great to to have you there because uh, what I love is to get your your uh, your thoughts and reflections on uh, the improvements we've made <laughs> and if they're improvements. So, I mean, really exciting stuff happening at Basecamp. We've uh, brought in a, a U.S. theater director to help us um, just just elevate the experience. And, and he's done some incredible work creating like live Zoom theater performances with whole like, oh, wow. acting troops over, over the pandemic. So he's come in and helped and done so much great work. Um, I did play Horace Vandergelder my senior in high school in Hello Dolly, so I could be like, "Hello Dolly, well hello, hey look, there's Dolly." I'll, I'll connect you to him, and I'll see <laughs> if he can use you in one of his upcoming. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've just made an incredible investment into into making something free better, which you know you don't see a lot of. Um, but in part because we've been doing some private base camps for different organizations. We've been doing it for uh, uh, a National Association of American um, School Teachers and School Administrators. Um, had a base camp last month, which was a great experience for them. 
been doing it for public public libraries. I mean, there's a lot of organizations who are asking themselves, how do we how do we help? You know, how do we bring our community together in a time when we physically can't? And what's a good way to doing that? And and so so that's given us some resources to um, to make the uh, the free public base camps that much you know just burn that much brighter. It also you know as I think about it and back to the 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 topic of what is normal um, and what kind of normal do we want to leave this into? You know, and and I'm sure you know, it's in the background of all your political conversations in the U.S. right now. It's just the role of uh, the big tech companies. Um, you know, we wouldn't be able to do the conversation we're having right now. We wouldn't be able to do base camps without uh, without the tech industry. And I, I think that this moment has really, you know, just demonstrated clearly to society that tech is not an industry anymore. It's something more pervasive than an economic sector and it, it's troubling because you know these giant tech companies are have become even more influential through this this global experience um and even more essential so how how to how to kind of shape the role of technology and the power of of tech companies is that in the one sense become more urgent and important and the other sense been kind of more difficult because of how influential and essential um, they've all, they've become as a, as just a, an element of, of yeah, and, they, and they occupy reality. a unique place in the political and cultural landscape, right? In that most of the tech companies are, Generally, the people that run them are generally kind of cultural liberals, right? Progressives on one level, and yet are also almost sort of laissez-faire capitalists on the other level. So uh, there are a lot of people that are like, look, they're identifying exactly what you're saying and, and thinking the tech companies need to be something more like a public utility, right? It's like power and water, right? It's not, this isn't just like um, Amazon delivering you, I mean, like a, a package that you could, uh, or a product you could get at Walmart too. This is like your kids schooling in a pandemic can't happen without the tech companies, right? Like mm -hmm. you, most of you can't work. So it's like, so living without big tech right now is like, it would be like living without power or water, right? And, and yet big tech, and the same thing also with, with media distribution, like are you a platform or are you a publisher, right? And, and these are things we just don't know because these companies are relatively new, right? And they've, they're so integrated into our existence, and yet we haven't gotten around to a way to culturally figure out what their place is in society. Like, we know how to regulate a power company or water company. We know how to regulate and deal with newspapers or magazines. We don't know how to, like, get the handle on this. And I don't think we're anywhere close to... I mean, when in when Mark Zuckerberg was first in front of the U.S. Senate, and I think it was Orrin Hatch... You provide all these free services for your for, for all the, your users, and you don't charge anything. How do you do this? And Zuckerberg looks at him and just goes, um, "We sell ads." <laughs> <laughs> not a and complicated business like, model. You're just like the politics is not ready to to, to, yeah. to figure this out. Yeah. So interestingly, that and maybe bring it full circle. Um, I think you've just described a kind of you know what. I think we hope in in its on its best day, Basecamp is a good space for. 
is exploring these problems that we don't know the answers, but we know the problem. Um, and actually, back at the original base camp, you know, one of the big conversations was around the role of technology platforms. And it was really interesting because it kind of bifurcated. There's a group of people who were, were convinced that, you know, private companies cannot be trusted, you know, to own and run and control these platforms. Um, and so it had to be, had to be turned into like a public utility, like owned by government. And then there's a group of people who were convinced that government should not be running <laughs> these technology platforms. Um, what they shared in the larger umbrella, you know, that they were, they became a unity of purpose is that they need to be improved. Yeah. And they need to serve society and they need to serve society better. And that's, you know, that's kind of the level of, you know, when you're looking for a solution, then the fact that I don't trust government and the fact you don't but trust business frustrates us from agreeing. When you're looking for a shared purpose, you can come together and you can continue a rich and important conversation and dialogue that needs to happen, but can't happen if you rush to solution. Because that's what simplifies the world down into I see it my way and you see it yours and we just can't connect on this. So that was a profound insight for me, kind of like one of the original insights of like why it's important to create spaces that aren't about answers, but are about questions, you know, that aren't about solutions, but are about, you know, I think it was Dwight Eisenhower and said, like, when I can't, when I can't uh, find a solution, I go back and I enlarge the problem. And the, and the thinking of that is, yeah, because, you know, the solution tends to be a very reductive way of looking at the world and the complexity of the world today means that we need to be expansive. Maybe that's my summary my, and my last word, and then I'll leave you the final word on this question of, you know, what is normal? I think, you know, intuitively what we both want to do is challenge the, 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 the ease with which the idea of normal can really get reductive in a hurry that this is what should be. And you just miss out on so much more that is. Um, and so normal as a concept leaves out a lot. And that stuff that leaves out, I think is really important. Yeah. And also I think it's oftentimes the thing so, right, like, so everybody in the United States right now, and, and, and again, the world watches our elections because we're the last sort of big superpower and kind of thing. But everybody's convinced that everything's going to change after Tuesday. And I, I always, I tend to think that the things that are going to change are the things we're not thinking are going to change, right? Like, I, I think often our attention is myopic on things that are, that condition our own sense of normal and normalcy. And usually the stuff that really is so disruptive sneaks up on us, right? I mean, even Donald Trump, right? I mean, Donald Trump didn't think he was going to be president. This was the thing, like a fiasco, so he could kind of raise his negotiating rates with NBC. Okay, I, I do decent in the presidential primary, and then I can get more money out of NBC. I mean, we never thought, like, Trump Trump wasn't going to be the new normal, right? Like, so, I mean, I, I just think like, yeah, just you know, keep uh, your eyes wide open and your ears close to the ground because the stuff that is really going to be disruptive and, and also probably offer some unique opportunities, it's going to be the stuff where, where oftentimes we're not seeing it 
or expecting it. That's a, okay. So I, I lied. I'm going to take a last word, but then you can have the last word <laughs> again. <laughs> Because like, yeah, maybe the meta insight about a Donald Trump was there was, you know, four years ago, there was this instinctive desire to kind of see it as abnormal, as an error, um, and therefore something that, you know, we got to kind of put it behind us and then we can revert to normal. Um and you know what it's what four years has forced people to confront and explore, and I think now people understand it much better is that it, he is part of the reality um that that instead of and and just in anything instead of kind of saying, "Oh, that's abnormal to just shift our whole frame and say that is part of the reality and if if it feels strange to me that's because my mindset isn't paying attention to a lot of things yeah um and i i would hope you know like let's say um the election goes the the democrats way i think there will be such such a a strong desire by so many people to kind of close the book on that abnormality say okay well, we can stop taking all of that stuff uh, as part of the reality that we're in. I think that would be, you know, just like if we exit this pandemic, say, okay, we just close the book on that and go back to normal. Right. It is, is, is such, um, I don't know, stunts our own exploration of, and discovery of so much more we haven't <laughs> been paying attention to. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's like, you're, so Trump's got 40% of the country behind him. And some of those people are pretty intense. Like, Everyone's not going to go, okay, Biden won. Uh, we got to find a new passion. <laughs> like, that's going to be there. <laughs> and you have yeah. to figure out like the, the new normal is not just going to people. It, we're still going to have these tensions and, and battles and, and struggles. And it's just like, are there constructive new ways to engage them? Um, that's, that'll be the kind of thing. Can we reimagine new ways forward that don't ask people to just be canceled? Right. But, but offer, try to figure out ways to, expand the conversation you know and i don't know if that's possible but it seems like the only way out of the kind of cul-de-sac and gridlock that at least in the u.s we're in i mean which which would be helpful to get out of it on that note expand the conversation All right, my friend stay safe see you at base camp november 7th see you at base camp this was great thanks for listening to the atlas project we'd love to hear your feedback Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.